0: Uh, When I was in uh, third grade, I had a a teacher, Uh, her name was Miss Sykes, and uh, I remember one of the things I remember about Miss Sykes, she was always trying to think of fun things for us to do together as a class. And so I remember uh, February 14th rolled around, and it was Valentine's Day, and Miss Sykes had all of us create these little mailboxes. A lot of you probably did this in grade school. You know, you get a little box and we got a piece of paper and we curved it over the top so it kind of had the shape of a mailbox and we set them all along one shelf. And then when Valentine's Day came, everybody brought their little cards in. And at some point during the day, you could drop the cards in the corresponding mailbox to the person you want to give it to. And then at the end of the day, Ms. Sykes let us get our mailboxes and kind of go through them. You know, we all kind of know that experience. I remember getting the mailbox and starting to look through them. And the first place that I looked was on the back of the card. You know, you get the little envelope. Everybody knows those kind of cheap, little perforated Valentine's cards that you get when you're a little kid. And I remember opening it up. And the first thing I do is flip it over because the name on the back would directly correspond to how I felt about the card that I just received. You know, I can remember opening up one and it's just like from my buddy. And I'm like, yeah, cool, thanks, pal. You know, I throw it aside, you know, big deal. My buddy gave me a card. There was a specific name that I was looking for to see if I had gotten a Valentine's Day card from the girl that I kind of had a crush on. The first girl that I ever wrote one of those notes, hey, I like you, do you like me? Check yes or no. I needed to know. She never wrote that note back, by the way. So I needed to know if she was going to give me a Valentine's Day card. I remember I opened the second card and I rip it open and I look and I look at the name on the back and it's a girl's name. But it's that girl that I saw walk in with like a stack this big, of Valentine's Day cards. She's just that really nice girl that gives a card to everybody. So it didn't really mean that much. you know. I'm like, yeah, thanks. Throw it aside. I'm ready for the next one, and I remember getting to the card where I flipped it over, and there it was, the name I was looking for, and now suddenly, the words on the other side of that card meant so much more because it was from the person that I wanted it to be from. The cheesy, corny Valentine's Day joke went straight to my heart, and my heart swelled because I thought this girl also had a crush on me because isn't it true that the name that a note or a letter is from somehow begins to impact the way that you read or receive that note or that letter? That if it's from a person that you ascribe great worth to or a person that you can relate to or a person that's important to you, then that letter suddenly means so much more than if it's just from some random person that you don't have any relationship with. You know, this morning we're starting this series on 1 Peter. You know, we call these books of the Bible. This is not a book. This is a letter. What we're gonna read in 1 Peter over the next uh, couple of months is not a book, but it's a letter that was written by a very real person. It was written to a very real group of people in a very particular place, in a particular culture, in a particular time. And when we begin to understand who wrote the letter, I believe the words will mean more to us and will begin to speak to us in a different way. And in the same way, when we begin to understand who the letter was written to, then the words will start to come alive in a different way. And so today, as we jump into 1 Peter, we have a very simple goal. I want us to take a look at who is it that is writing these words that we're going to spend a couple of months kind of walking through. And who was it that he was writing to? And why in the world should we be able to relate to them in any way whatsoever? My, 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 my goal is to kind of unpack these two things. But what I want us to see, very simply, this is what I hope is clearer than anything else. is that As we walk through the who's of who wrote it and who is it written to, I hope that we give a clear picture of the faithfulness of God. If you don't hear anything else that we talk about this morning, I just hope that you hear this clear picture being painted of how faithful and steadfast God is, that no amount of our failures, no amount of cultures that come against can stand against or oppose or destroy the faithfulness of God, that he is good, he's always been good, and he always will be good. That's kind of the heart that we wanna get to. So let's start, let's look in 1 Peter. We're gonna start in chapter one. We're just gonna read the first two verses today. Peter... An apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. This is the first words out of uh, Peter's letter. And so, uh, you know, we want to start with this, answering this question of who wrote the letter. Well, the name of the letter kind of gives that away. It's, it's, it's Peter, right? And so uh, if you've been around church for any amount of time, then you've probably heard of this guy, Peter. Uh, if you're brand new to Christianity, Peter's a very significant figure. You may have heard his name, even if you've never been in a church before. You see, Peter, uh, his significance is so clear when you go back and read the story of Jesus, So in the first four books of the New Testament, we call those the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you read through those four Gospels, Peter's name is mentioned more than anybody else's except for Jesus. So it's very clear that he is like the lead supporting actor in the cast of Jesus's story. But over and over again, Peter's name keeps coming up. And if you go beyond the Gospels, you get into the book of Acts, which kind of tells the story of how the church was formed and how the church began to grow. And once again, you see Peter right at the middle of all of it. He's this central figure that played a key role as a leader in the early days of Jesus's church. But here's the thing about Peter is that uh, his, his, the way that his character kind of unfolds and the way you begin to understand him, he's, he's so similar, I think, to most of us, to you and I. He's so relatable when you begin to understand him. You see, Peter, he would have written this letter yeah, around the year 62 AD. Some, some say 62, some say 64, but somewhere in that time frame, Peter wrote this letter, which would have been about 30 years after Jesus died and resurrected. You know, 33 to 35 years before Peter wrote this letter, Peter was just a dude. He was just a guy, a guy standing on the deck of his dad's fishing boat whose probably his only ambition was to take over his father's fishing business so that he could feed the mouths of his family. And so Peter, who at the time, his name was not even Peter, his name was Simon. Simon, standing on the deck of his dad's fishing boat with his brother, Andrew, and they are preparing for another day to cast out, to throw out nets, bring in fish, throw out nets, bring in fish, when along comes this rabbi by the name of Jesus. And Jesus walks up to Simon and Andrew's dad's boat and he looks at Simon and his brother, Andrew, and he says, hey, you guys, I want you to follow me. If you follow me from now on, you will fish for people instead of for fish. In other words, he's saying, listen, if you will follow me, I'm going to give your life a purpose that you never could have imagined for yourself. You are going to be going after the hearts of humanity to change the trajectory of their lives for eternity. And so you see Simon and Andrew, they drop the nets and they get off the boat and they start to walk with Jesus. And so Simon's story begins to unfold until you get to Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, we see this incredible moment in Simon Peter's life. He's standing with Jesus and Jesus asks his followers. He says, hey guys, you know, we've been doing this ministry for a while now. Who are people saying that I am? And then Jesus says more poignantly, he looks at his disciples. He says, who do you say that I am? And it was in this moment where Simon Peter makes this bold claim. He's the first person to confess with his mouth that he believes that Jesus is the Messiah the living son of God. See, Peter plays a significant role in Christian history because he's the first one to say it out loud. Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the son of God. And you see, Jesus looks at him and he says, you've been called Simon, but from now on your name will be Peter or Petra, which means rock. And Jesus says, upon this rock, upon this confession you have made, I will build my church. What an incredible honor. You know, we hear stories like that, and we're like, man, how could we ever relate to Peter? I mean, what an honor he's given by Jesus. Jesus says, I'm gonna build my church upon you. You see, but Peter just had this moment of spiritual clarity where he said some words, and it's so fascinating that if you watch what happens in his life, you begin to wonder, man, did he even really believe what he said? You see, Peter, just like the rest of us, had a moment of spiritual clarity, and he wanted to step into the thing that Jesus was inviting him to, and yet what we see that happens after that was just this series of ups and downs. You keep reading Matthew 16, and just a few verses later, right after Peter has said, "'Hey, Jesus, you're the Messiah,' a few minutes later, he's rebuking Jesus and telling him, "'No, Jesus, you're not going to lay down your life.'" And Jesus, after saying, "'Hey, I'm going to build my church on this rock,' looks at Peter and says, "'Get behind me, Satan.'" You don't have in mind the ways of God, but the ways of men. Peter went from being up here, I'm to build my church on this rock, to rebuking Jesus. And then if you fast forward through Peter's life, you find him the day that Jesus is on trial. Jesus is being tried to be crucified. And Peter was this guy that only wanted to follow from a distance. He's kind of hiding in the shadows until finally somebody calls him out. Hey, you were with Jesus. We know you. Peter says, no, I don't know him. He vehemently denies knowing Jesus. In fact, calls curses down upon his own head if for, if for, for believing that he does know Jesus. He says, no, I don't know him. I don't know this man. He denies Jesus. After Jesus is crucified, you know what Peter does? He goes right back to his dad's fishing boat. All those words of identity that Jesus spoke over him, it's like he doesn't even believe him anymore. And he just goes right back to casting out the nets. On and on, Peter's ups and downs, they go. Even after the church is born, if you read Galatians chapter two, there's this story where the apostle Paul, he says he comes in and he finds Peter refusing to sit with non-Jewish believers when he was around Jewish believers because the pulls, the cultural pulls of racism had their claws in his heart and he could not believe. He didn't want to be associated with people that were not Jews. Jews. So you see, Peter is this guy that starts with this moment of spiritual clarity where he makes this bold confession of faith and then the rest of his ministry just looks like this up and down. And I wonder if any of us can relate to that. How many of you have had one of those moments of spiritual clarity? For some of you that grew up in the church, it was that moment, you know, when you finally believed that the love of Jesus was real and you wanted to give your life to following him and so you stepped into the waters of baptism and confessed that Jesus was your Lord. For some of you, that happened right here at Ethos, where you, for the first time, felt the love of Jesus in your heart and you gave yourself to following him. For some of you, it was that moment where Jesus asked you to do something crazy, like quit your job, move to a new city, start a nonprofit, start a church, go be a part of a new church. And you've had these things where you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus has spoken and called and invited you in. And then you step into it and you experience just the ups and the downs. Of real life, of trying to follow Jesus. But what I love about this is that we're reading this letter 2,000 years later that despite his failures, Jesus' faithfulness was strong enough to keep pulling Peter into his intended identity. You see, here's what I love about Peter is that just as many times as he messed up, he turned around repentant and brokenhearted about it, every time. You look, when he denies Jesus, he goes outside and the weight of it hits him and he just straight up ugly cries because he realizes that he's turned his back on his Lord. And when Jesus goes back to fishing, I mean, when when Peter goes back to fishing, when Jesus comes back to life after the resurrection, Peter's on the boat, he sees Jesus on the shore and what does he immediately do? He jumps off the boat into the water and runs or swims to the shore because he wants to be back with Jesus. You see, every time Peter messes up, It's almost as if every time he screws up, he can close his eyes and he can see the look in Jesus' eye when Jesus said, I'm gonna call you Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. He remembers the promises of Jesus and in the face of his failures, the faithfulness of Jesus gives him hope to keep on going. I wonder how many of us this morning, you're you're feeling the weight of your own failures. Man, I know I heard from Jesus. I'm I'm pretty sure this was him. I know I, I... And it just feels like your life is doing this. You know, the fact that we're reading this letter from a guy named Peter almost 2,000 years later just shows that Jesus' faithfulness in your life is going to take a whole lot more than your failures (laughs) to disrupt the faithfulness of Jesus. So I love Peter because he's such a relatable guy. He's just a normal guy that had this moment of spiritual clarity and made a bold proclamation of faith and then the rest of his life, he spent trying his best to live into it, leaning upon the graciousness and the faithfulness of Jesus' promises in order to live out his calling. But just as much as important as it is for us to understand who wrote the letter, I think it's good for us to understand who he is writing to. Now, Peter's gonna give this kind of long address and who he's writing to. He starts off with his name. Hey, this is Peter, apostle of Jesus. But then he goes on and he kind of gives this weird address. He says, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So, you know, real quick, I'll tell you what these places are. Uh, These places are the names of of, of kind of regions in what is today modern Turkey so this area in the Roman Empire had been divided up into kind of four different regions. And what Paul was doing, he was writing a letter so that it could be circulated amongst all these churches. Here's what's amazing is that almost all of the believers that would have gotten this would have been Gentile believers. And so the very people that Peter at one point did not even want to associate with because of the faithfulness of Jesus in his life, now he's writing a letter to them to encourage them in their identity and who they are in Jesus. And so Peter writes the letter, he sends it out with this young man named Silas or Silvanus, depending on which translation of the text you have. Silas takes the letter and he would come to kind of the urban centers in each one of these places that we just read. And there the letter would be copied down by hand by other Christians who would then take that letter and they that way spread it out even into all the rural villages around what is today Turkey. And so Peter's saying, hey, all of you that are in this region, I'm writing this letter to you, but he uses an interesting title for them. And this is kind of where I want us to land for the rest of our time this morning, are the two words that Peter uses to describe his audience. You know, if you have the NIV, which is what I've been reading from, it says, to God's elect exiles. I believe there's there's some better words that will help us understand what it is that he's trying to say. In fact, I think that word exiles, a, a better word there is the word sojourner. So we're gonna use that word. In fact, the whole title of this series in First Peter is just called Sojourn, A Journey Through the Letter of First Peter. But that first word matters as well. He says, hey, to God's elect sojourners. And so what does elect mean? And so there's two words I kind of want us to focus on. I'm gonna use the word chosen, chosen or elect, and the word sojourners. Let's start with the word chosen. He says, hey, you are God's chosen sojourners. What does it mean for them to be chosen? You know, I think throughout the Old Testament, this word chosen was only used of one group of people. Throughout the Old Testament, the word chosen was used repeatedly to refer to the Israelite people. But if you read in Isaiah's uh, book, in, in the prophecies of Isaiah, over and over again in chapter 43, in chapter 45, in chapter 65, Isaiah is gonna refer to Israel as God's chosen, God's special people, God's chosen nation, God's chosen ones, over and over again, God's chosen servant. And Isaiah is speaking about the Israelites, this very specific group and nation of people. They are God's chosen. But what does it mean to be chosen In God's kingdom. And why would Peter be writing this to a group of Gentiles if they're not Israelites? I think this is one of the most beautiful pictures that we see of what it means to be chosen. You know, in our world, in our culture, when we think of somebody being chosen or somebody being elected, what we imagine is that that choosing or that election was the result of kind of a process of elimination, right? We think, hey, there was a big group of people and that big group of people got whittled down until there was one person left that wanted to be chosen. We think of kickball on third grade playground field, you know, where it's like, I want to be chosen. Everyone else has been whittled down. I don't want to be the last. I want to be picked. Or we think about an election, you know, where you have multiple candidates and ultimately what you're trying to do is whittle down the playing field until you have one left that you're going to choose. But this is not the way that it works in the kingdom of God. Being chosen works differently. It doesn't go from a big group being whittled down. Think about what Jesus said about the kingdom of God. Jesus said that the kingdom of God was like a mustard seed. starts small. And yet it grows so large that its branches spread out, and the birds of the air can come and nest in it. Jesus doesn't say, hey, the kingdom of God starts with this big tree and slowly God is whittling it down until he gets down to this small thing. No, it's the total opposite. You see, when you, when you, when you think about God choosing, you have to understand the big story that God has been telling. You know, a lot of people think that this phrase, chosen sojourners, that Peter was preaching a sermon in and of itself. You see that word chosen refers to the nation of Israel. And for for these Gentile believers, they would have known, they would have heard the stories of how God chose. And if you go back to the beginning of where God chose you, come to Genesis chapter 12. See, in Genesis chapter 12, God made a choice. He picked one man, this man named Abram. And God came to Abram and he said, hey, Abram, this is my paraphrase, hey, Abram, I want you to go, I'm choosing you and your family, through your family, I'm going to bless every nation on earth. He said, Abram, I want you to go. I'm choosing you, and through you, all peoples on earth will come to be blessed. You see, this is what it means when God chooses. God made a choice with Abram. I want you to look through one man. Through one man, God chose a family. You see, Jacob and his 12 sons, if you keep reading it in the story of Genesis, through one family, God chose one nation, the nation of Israel. And through one nation, because of the blood and the sacrifice and the, of Jesus Christ, God chose all nations. You see, the way this goes, that when God chooses, it is not a whittling effect. No, it is a widening effect. You see, God chose one man through whom to bless all nations, And what Peter is writing to these Gentile believers is absolutely astounding. He's saying, listen, I'm calling you chosen. I'm equating you with God's people. You are not outside of God's promises. You've not been excluded from God's promises. No, when God chose Abram, he chose you. When God chose Israel, he chose you. That God set Israel up to bring Jesus into the world so that the door to God's family could be kicked wide open so that now all people are invited to step into being the chosen people of God. And how does this happen? Well, Peter goes on to explain it. He says, this happened because of God's foreknowledge, because God knew this is the way it was gonna go. He says, this happens because of the sanctifying work of the spirit that he longs to put in you. This happens because of the sprinkling of Jesus's blood that takes away all of your sins and brings you into God's family. He says, this is what it means to be chosen. It's not by your own effort. It's not by the good things that you do. It's because God, 2,000 years ago, knew what he was gonna do and he chose one man. And now through that one man, He has opened the door to all humanity. what a beautiful God we serve. He's thrown open the door to be in his family. And so he says, you have been chosen. You know, I don't know how many of you feel like you are unchosen, unseen, unworthy, unspiritual, not good enough. Peter looks at you and he goes, no, no, no. You gotta know thousands of years ago, the faithfulness of God is unrelenting and he chose one man. And now he's thrown open the door through the man, Jesus Christ, to let you in. You are God's. God just adores you. He cherishes you. You are part of his family because of Jesus. So Peter writes that to these Gentile believers. He says, hey, you're not outside anymore. Now you're in. You're chosen. You're part of God's chosen people. But then he uses this word uh, exiles. I'm gonna tell you why I like the word sojourner better. You know, exile kind of carries with it this idea that it's it's a group of people that used to be somewhere, but they got displaced somewhere else. That's what we think of when we think of someone who's been exiled. But the people that, that Peter is writing to, most of them have probably lived in these same villages they've lived in their entire lives. They have not been displaced. So why would we call them exiles? You know, some translations uh, use the word strangers to describe them. I don't think stranger really captures the heart of it either because stranger kind of makes it sound like you're around a bunch of people that you don't know. But Peter is writing to people who are living in the same families they were in when they came to Jesus, the same towns they were in when they came to Jesus. They know the people around them. I like this word sojourner because it carries with it kind of this picture of being on a journey. A sojourner kind of says you are a temporary resident in a place that is not ultimately their home. You've been born there, raised there, but you're not entirely at home there either. You see, Peter was trying to let them know that, hey, despite the fact that you are right where you're intended to be, there are gonna be times where it feels like you don't belong now that you've confessed the name of Jesus. You see, oftentimes we think that the result of being chosen chosen, should be like this elevation of our status. We think that when you're chosen or when you're elected, that somehow you are elevated or you begin to enjoy more privilege. But what Peter is going to get at throughout this whole letter is that not, it's not the way it always works in God's kingdom. And while we're in this world, that, that when you're chosen, sometimes you actually begin to experience resistance from the culture around you. To understand why Peter would refer to these Christians as sojourners, you have to understand some of what it felt like to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. You see, in the Roman Empire that all these people lived in, uh, religion and spirituality was very welcomed. In fact, any religion was okay, as long as it contributed to the civic cause or the ultimate cause of the empire itself. So you see what would happen when the Roman Empire would come into a new town or a new country and they would conquer it. They would take their religions and their gods and they would just add them to the pantheon of gods that they already served. They said, hey, this religion's fine. Many people believed in the Roman Empire that religion was just kind of this necessary act in order to maintain the ultimate cause of the empire. And so long as your spirituality and your religion contributed to Pax Romana, to the peace of the Roman Empire, then it was okay, it was fine and good. But man, what happens when they encounter a spirituality or a religious philosophy or teaching that does not fit with their pantheon of gods? What, when they come across believers that go, hey, our God doesn't belong up there amongst your other gods, but he is the supreme and only God. Well, then what do they do? You see, Christians were viewed as a threat to the Roman empire because the one they followed, this Jesus, he claimed this title of Lord, which is in direct opposition to the title that Caesar gave himself as Lord. And so Christianity was viewed as a threat. And when, Paul, when Peter wrote this letter, when Peter wrote this letter, depending on when you date it, the Roman Empire was either on the cusp of the first great persecution of Christians or it was in the middle of the first great persecution of Christians under the emperor Nero. And what Peter is saying is, hey, listen, you are the chosen people of God that you've been welcomed in because of Jesus Christ, but here's what you need to know. The culture that you're in is pretty soon gonna make it really difficult for you to continue to walk in obedience to Jesus. Some of the people that received this letter they would watch loved ones be murdered. They would watch loved ones be lit on fire and used as torches because the Roman empire began to come down hard on people who claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ. Now that sounds pretty foreign to us because I know we don't, and we're in Nashville, Tennessee, (laughs) a belt buckle of the Bible belt, right? In the United States, the Western world where Christianity is kind of the norm. But I wanna draw your attention to kind of what some of what's happening in our culture. And I know all of you have probably experienced this. You know, morality is radically being shifted as we speak all around us. The people's definition of morality is being shifted. You know, I think one of the, the, kind of the, the leading sense of morality today, today's ultimate morality is tolerance and acceptance of all beliefs, except for any belief that claims any sort of exclusivity of truth. I think we all know that to be true. All of us are okay with talking about how Christianity is about loving your neighbor. It is about serving. It is about giving. But man, how do you feel when, you, when somebody asks you, hey, didn't Jesus say, hey, I'm, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, nobody comes to the Father except through me? Has, has your skin ever crawled because people question the exclusivity of Jesus in our culture? You see, that claim of Jesus, that he is the exclusive way to God, it just feels offensive in our culture. You just say that around people and people will look at you funny like, how dare you? How dare you claim that there's only one way? You see, here's what we have to understand as followers of Jesus is we're not making that claim, Jesus made that claim. And there are going to be times, Ethos Church, if you're a follower of Jesus, when you're trying to walk in the ways of Jesus in humility and servitude and love, and yet the culture around you will look at you as though you are morally reprehensible because you believe there's only one way to God. If you haven't felt that, then you will. But this is the reality of what Jesus taught. He said, listen, the door is wide open, but I am the door, and I'm the only door. And there are gonna be times for us who are following Jesus that we are gonna feel like aliens and strangers and sojourners in the culture around us And there are gonna be times where we are tempted to respond with anger or hate or violence. And there have been times when the church has responded in that way. And what Peter is gonna say all throughout his letter is that, listen, there is a better way to be a sojourner in a culture that doesn't understand you. There is a more Jesus-like way to be a stranger in the culture that pushes against the exclusivity of Jesus. And so as we read through this letter, it's gonna be like this guide for all of us as we sojourn our ways through the culture around us that pushes against the beautiful and authentic claims of Jesus Christ as the one true Lord and one true Savior. So I think this letter is just going to be crucial for us as a church family as we continue to try to be the hands and feet of Jesus in a culture that wants to push against the claims of Jesus. So this is the letter of 1 Peter, written by a guy that I think all of us can relate to, a guy that had his ups and downs, a guy who came to realize that he needed the faithfulness of Jesus in his life. It's written to a group of people who realize that at the moment of them receiving this letter that they are stepping into the millennia-old faithfulness of God, carrying out his promises that he started in a man named Abram. And that as we read this letter, we understand that we are recipients of the faithfulness of God that he has been carrying out for century upon century, that no amount of your failures can get in the way of God's faithfulness. And no matter how many cultures rise and fall or cities rise and fall, the faithfulness of God is still moving forward, that the movement is still moving. And this is what we're invited into. So here's what I wanna do this morning. We're gonna go take communion. It's the way that we always do. And I know that there are some of you here this morning that you are feeling as though your mess-ups, your failures have somehow disqualified you for the kindness of Jesus, for the grace of Jesus. I just stand up here and I'll let you know, just like Peter, You are not, your failures can't undo the faithfulness of Jesus, but take some notes out of Peter's life. Then when you realize your failures, be willing to turn and fix your eyes back on Jesus to see the loving gaze that he longs to look at you with. He welcomes you back in with open arms. So as you come to communion, you take the bread, you take the cup, and you remember that his grace cannot be outreached, that he reaches you no matter where you are. Some of you who are here this morning and you have experienced the faithfulness of Jesus in the midst of your failures. And here's what I wanna invite you to do is you get the cup, as you get the bread and you sit down with somebody next to you that you know, just testify to the faithfulness of Jesus. Testify to where you've seen the faithfulness of his calling on your life trump the failures of where you've messed it up. And if you have felt far from God and outside of his promises, then just know that Jesus has kicked wide open the door because he longs to bring you into the family of God that you are part of the chosen people of God because of Jesus Christ. And so we're gonna take communion, we're gonna worship, we're gonna celebrate who this God is. If you need prayers, we'll have men and women at the Respond Banner. We'd love to pray with you, encourage you any way that we can. Let's all stand together. I'm gonna pray for us and then I'll send us to the table with one another. God, I love you. And I, Lord, I just, I'm so thankful for this quality of yours that you are steadfast and you are faithful. You are not relying upon our performance in order to accomplish the amazing things that you long to accomplish. You're not relying upon us in order to make all things new, in order to bring heaven to earth. You're not relying upon us in order to make us good enough for you. But Lord, you have done everything. You chose Abram to redeem to bring life, to bring Jesus into the world. You chose through Jesus to open the door wide for relationship with you. So God, this morning, the rest of our time together, Father, I just invite your spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, would you let your spirit come and do your sanctifying work in our hearts in the places where we don't feel chosen, in the places where we feel like failures, in the places where we feel scared to talk openly about our beliefs in Jesus as the one true Lord Father, would you come right now in our midst and minister to us as we worship you, as we pray for each other, and as we commune. and love you, Lord. So in the name of Jesus, we pray and give thanks. Amen.